Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, if you would take it and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. We're finishing our journey through the book of Matthew, only a couple weeks left. And then uh, while you're turning to Matthew 24, uh, after Christmas is over, we're going to start doing something a little bit different. I think that uh, you'll enjoy where we're going, but uh, we're going to do a few more theme-based sermons and cover a whole bunch of uh, different topics I think you'll find uh, enjoyable. And so Matthew 24, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your many blessings as always. Lord, we thank you for the ability to come here under this roof and worship you. Lord, we thank you that we can do so without fear of persecution or trouble. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, dive into your word, Lord, I pray that it would change us to be more like your son. Lord, I pray that we would heed the words that you say today. I pray that we would reflect on them. And Lord, I pray that we would in turn uh, be more like you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been keeping up through the book of Matthew, when we got to Matthew chapter 23, uh, Jesus has somewhat of a a confrontation with the Pharisees. It's a group of people that uh, he's not real fond of them and they're not real fond of him either. And so they they kind of go back and forth in in somewhat of a uh, battle of words. And at the end, the Pharisees realize that they don't need to say anything else to Jesus because he is getting them every time. And he's doing so just by using the word of God. And so at the end of Matthew 23, uh, Jesus is heartbroken for the city of Jerusalem. He, uh, he eagerly wants them to repent. He wants to, to be able to save them. And he tells them, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Behold, your house is be- being left to you desolate. And so, for I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a, remember he's already come in on Palm Sunday and they've already said one time, Blessed is he who comes in the Lord. But he says, I'm going away and then I'm going to come back and you won't see me until then. And so, with this question in mind, when are we going to see you again? You lead into Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, 1 says, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to the point out the temple buildings they came up to point out the temple buildings to him excuse me and he said to them do you not see all these things truly i say to you not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down and so what's going on is that jesus has been in the temple he's been speaking with the pharisees and he's been having some of these discourses and as they walk out the disciples grab jesus and they say jesus look at this temple look how great it is and so Do you see the irony here? The irony here is that you have God has become flesh and that's Jesus Christ. And the temple was built as a dwelling place for God. And so the irony of them pointing out God's house to God is is somewhat comical. And so they're pointing out how great the temple is. And he tells them, listen, eventually not one stone is going to be left here. And what he's doing is giving them a prophecy about A.D. 70 when the Romans are going to come in and they're going to tear the temple down and there's not going to be one stone left. You see, what had happened is that they had, when Rome came in, they burnt the temple down. And when they burnt the temple down, all of the gold melted in between the rocks and everything. And the Roman soldiers, from what we understand, were told that any of the gold they found they could keep. And so if there was gold on the wall and a place burnt down and there's gold in the bricks and you've been told you can keep all the gold, what are you going to do? You're going to take it apart brick by brick and get every ounce of gold you can get your hand on. And that's what the Romans do. And so the temple is completely destroyed in 70 AD. And that prophecy of Jesus comes true. And so now we go on to verse 3. And this is why we started back in chapter 23. 
As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen. He's referring to the return of Jesus. Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so I want you to remember these in context. Jesus has told them that they're not going to see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And their question is, when are these things going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, as we get into these passages, I want you to remember that nobody said the word rapture yet. They're merely talking about when is Jesus going to return. And all of the people, when they're looking forward to the return of Christ, they're looking forward to Christ setting himself up in Jerusalem as king. And they're looking at getting out from underneath of Roman rule, right? Now give me a little head nod. Like we're a little weak today, so make sure everybody's with me. Good, everybody's alive. And so they're looking forward to Jesus setting himself up and freeing them from the earthly power that they're under. Now we get to verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. So, there's going to be a lot of people misleading you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet, through the Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ will show, for false Christ and false prophets will arise, and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance, so that if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so he's gone on to tell them all of these things that are going to take place. And you know most of these things. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Nation's going to rise against nation. And these are the beginning. And so everything you see on the news has to take place. And so you look at the news and you go, what in the world do we do? There's wars. There's rumors of wars. And all of these bad things are going on. And it says that all of these things have to take place. 
And so with our men's breakfast, uh, Jack did us a delight and he was catching us up on the political landscape uh, locally and then a little bit even broader. And at the end, the question arises, what can we do about all of this? And the answer is, is that you can pray and you can vote and you can vote your convictions is what Jack led us to. And then in the end, it's God working everything out. You have the power to pray and you have the power to vote. And God is going to work every single thing else out. And so what does that mean for America on the big landscape when you watch the news? What does it look like? Are we going to continue in decline? Are we going to rebound? What are we going to do? And the answer is, is that you, you may not like this, but this is spiritually true, that whatever happens to America is going to have gone through the hand of God first. And while we think that sometimes we could do a better job doing certain aspects of whatever job is being done, the truth is, is that God is going to align all of the pieces in all of the countries the way that he wants to so that he can bring about things to a close. And so all of these wars, all of these rumors of wars, all of these really do fit into context biblically. And everything is going to be okay. It may not be pretty. But it's going to go the direction ultimately that God wants it. And the same thing is true with your life. If your life you feel like is in a downward spiral sometimes, you can be confident that the same God who created the universe has got your life right in his hand. And he, if you know him, is going to keep you exactly where you need to be. And the same thing is true with our country. And so we keep going on. They're going to deliver you over and they're going to kill you. We've been, uh, last night we had the spooktacular, part of it was here, or excuse me, the ghost walk. Part of the ghost walk takes place in our cemetery. And since uh, I told the town that we don't tell ghost stories in our cemetery, I tell them stories about uh, people who have died for the sake of following Christ. And, and it said uh, in the book that I read them, and this is right in line with, uh, they're going to deliver you over to tribulation and kill you, right in line with that. This book was written in 1998. And in 1998, there were 156,000 Christians martyred around the world. And so all of these things are, are taking place that, have, uh, that, Matthew, that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew has said have to take place. And it's estimated that 164,000 were martyred in 1999. And that number has just been increasing and increasing and increasing. And I wish I had some, uh, some up-to-date numbers for you. Uh, I just don't write this minute. But all of these things are happening. Verse 12, lawlessness is increased. People's love will grow cold. You watch the news and you tell me if you're not watching a group of cold-hearted individuals who don't have love for their brother and sister. Give me a little head nod. You guys, you guys see the same news that I hear? Everything is what you should have done instead of jumping on board and supporting. I'll tell you what love looks like, and I didn't, I don't want to use myself as an illustration too much, but before we sang, I told the men, I said, this is it, right? And they said, yeah, this is it. I said, it's not too late for me to tell Betsy, let's skip it and do it next week if y'all are uncertain. And they were like, nope, let's do it. And I said, well, if the ship is going down, I'm going down with it. Not gonna, we're not gonna naysay it. You decided to do it. Uh, Betsy wants to do it. The guys want to do it. I'm right in there with you regardless of what happens. No complaining, no anything. It's just we're going to all give it our all. And the doggone thing turned out pretty good for the, for the seven or eight men that were up there. So thank you. Uh, but that's what love looks like. Love jumps on board and is in. And wherever things go, that's where we're going. And that's what's so great about families and such. Families stick together no matter how many bad decisions people make. They stick together and they get through things. But 
in the end, people's love is going to grow cold because of lawlessness. And so all of these things are happening. You get down to verse 16 and you go away or verse 15 and you see, wait a minute. This is where it really seems to get uh, imminent. And it says in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And this is a real warning. So when you get to the book of Daniel and you see that there's going to be what's called an abomination of desolation, that the Antichrist during the tribulation is going to set himself up as God in the temple to be worshipped. And Jesus says, when you see that happen, when you see the Antichrist set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God, if you're in Judea, the real place of Judea, which is surrounding Jerusalem, you need to flee to the mountains. And it says that whoever's on the housetop, don't even... So if you're cleaning out your gutters, don't even go get the things out of your house. Get out of town. And then he says, if you're in the field, don't turn back to get your coat. And he says, God bless your heart if you're pregnant. And if you're nursing a baby, because it's going to be rough. Because the persecution that comes about from the Antichrist during this period is going to be intense. And then he says... Very practical. Pray that it's not going to happen in the winter so that you're not cold while you're fleeing out in the wilderness or on a Sabbath. And the idea of praying that it's not on a Sabbath is so that those legalistic Jews that are still living aren't going to persecute you and stone you while you're working and fleeing on the Sabbath day because you're not supposed to do any work. And so he's going to go on to say that, listen, there's going to be great tribulation and it's going to be such that's not occurred from the beginning of the world until now. And you learn in verse 22 that somehow, in some way, God is going to cut those days short so that the people can survive them. That's the amount of intense persecution that's going to happen. Is that if God didn't cut the days short, no one would have been left alive. And then he goes on in verses 23 through the end and he says, listen. When the persecution comes and it gets heavy, deep, and real, people are going to be looking for the Christ. And I'm telling you, he's not coming the way that everybody says he's coming. If somebody says, there's the Christ, don't even go over there. If somebody says, hey, the Christ is here in this inner room, come see him. Don't even mess with him. There's going to be people. And they're going to do signs and wonders, but avoid those people because they're false. Christ is coming back like lightning from the east to the west. So is the coming of the Son of Man. And so there's going to be people that arise and come on the scene and want you to follow them, but they're all false. And then you get into some different illustrations that he gives. And he's going to give illustrations for the rest of this sermon, and he's going to give them for next week's sermon as well. And he says in verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is after the tribulation of those days. And so at the midway point of what you are thinking of right now is a seven year tribulation. At the midway point, the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple as God. And that's when he says, it's really going to get intense and you need to flee for the mountains. And then he says, but after the tribulation of those days, so at the end of those seven years, the sun will be darkened, verse 29, and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And so 
this is where I've said before, you don't have to be John Hagee to figure out the timeline here that Jesus has given. You've got the seven-year tribulation, and then Jesus is coming back. It makes perfect sense. At the end of that time, the sun's going to be darkened, the moon's not going to give its light, and you find that that's when the second coming that they're looking forward to is going to happen, at the end of that tribulation. And then you go on, and it says, now learn, in verse 32, now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation, and when he says this generation, he's not talking to the people he's talking to. He's saying that this generation of people who are alive when these things are taking place, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so if any of you have had a fig tree, you know that, you know, it's painfully obvious when the seasons are coming. Like your fig tree goes from being hard to sap begins to run through it. It softens up. Then it begins to have buds. You begin to get figs. And then you can see that when the figs begin to change color a little bit and they get soft, it's time to pick the figs. It it doesn't take a rocket scientist to grow figs is basically the point. And he says, you understand figs and everything I'm telling you fits perfectly just like a fig tree you're going to be able to see things progress and then he goes on in verse 36 and so so far things are making perfect sense then he says in verse 36 but of the day and the hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven nor the son but the father alone for the coming of the son of man will be just like the days of noah For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man be. And you go, wait a minute. Okay. If all of these things are going to happen the way that you just laid them out, if if it's just like the fig tree and it's going to be obvious, how is it also going to be like in the days of Noah? Like... If we can know perfectly what's going on, like you just said, with the fig tree, don't you think that everybody's going to know when a guy starts building a boat, get on, because things are exactly like Jesus told them? But the point here is that people are going to be complacent, and they're going to be going about their business, eating and drinking and marrying and doing all these things. And just like Noah was trying to warn everybody, listen, the end is near. It said that the scriptures say that for 120 years, Noah was preaching repentance, and no one listened. Everybody turned a deaf ear to Noah. And so it's going to be just like Noah. People are going to be preaching repentance. People are going to be preaching this sermon and next week's sermon. But the world is still not going to pay attention. The world is headed towards destruction. But it's going to be just like in the days of Noah. When they don't understand until the flood came and took them away. So is the coming of the Son of Man going to be. Then you get to verse 40. And verse 40 makes things look makes things not make quite as much sense. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And so you go, wait a minute. If the sun is not giving light and the moon is being darkened, there's no way I'm going out in the field and there's no way my wife is going to the mill. Like, it'd be obvious that Jesus is coming back, and we're going to be watching for him. And so, it's my belief that Jesus is giving them a little bit of a lot of information. So, there's a lot of information to give, and he's giving them a little bit in each category. And so, most of you are familiar with a a typical 
uh, end of times chart where you have however long the church age is going to last. So you have from Adam until Jesus, it's Old Testament, and then you have from Jesus until whenever the tribulation starts, right? And most of you go, well, how long is that going to be? Wow, I, if you know that, you should be here and not me. And so who knows how long that's going to be? And then we, we believe that there's going to be seven years of tribulation and sometime in this area, Jesus is going to come back in what we call a rapture, right? He's going to get the church. And then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus is going to come back once and for all and make things right. But then there's a thousand-year reign. And at the end of that thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan's going to be let loose. And then Jesus is going to fix things once and for all. Like That's pretty much a model that most of you are familiar with, right? It's, so they haven't asked all of these questions, but Jesus has given them a little sample. And he's told them when he's coming back for good... And now he's telling them something that's going to leave them wondering. There's going to be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And you go, well, what in the world does that have to do with you coming back? And if you look at some of the chapters in Thessalonians and you look at some of the other chapters, this is where we get the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture. That some point before the tribulation gets hot and heavy, whether it be at the beginning or leading up to the middle, there's, there's good people who, who make guesses as to when Jesus is coming back. Sometime in there, Jesus is going to come back and get his church. And there's going to be two people in a field. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. And so as weird as the left behind series seems, where there's going to be somebody in an airplane driving and then just they're gone, Jesus calls them. Something like that is going to happen where Christ comes and gets his church because of these verses and some verses in Thessalonians. And you go, well, what do you do then? If we don't know what to do, when's he coming back? We know when he's coming back for good, but if somebody's going to be in a field and disappear, how do we go about living our lives? And this is what he says in verse 42. Therefore, because of this, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And so point being here that, listen, Jesus tells them, don't worry, I'm coming back, but you don't know when. And you go, man, I wish Jesus would have told us a little bit of more information about when he was coming back. But think about your life just for a second. Just think about it. And think about all of the deadlines that you have in your life. How many of those deadlines do you get everything in line real early and you work at it hard all the way up until the deadline? Any of you type A people out there that do that sort of thing? Most people are not like that. Most of us, when we know a deadline is coming, we got plenty. I got another month. I got another month. Sunday morning service that comes around every week. You know, I still got time to do that. It's only Thursday. I got more time before Sunday. That's how we are as people. We're procrastinators. And so just imagine that Jesus says, hey guys, I'm coming back at... October 28th, whenever, 2015. How much of your life do you think you would have wasted? You would be exactly like many of your friends who are putting off being saved until life gets tough. That's what most of us would have done. Most of us wouldn't have been the type of people to get saved and then work hard all the way up until the deadline. We would be right there with the rest of the batch, procrastinating until the last minute till Christ comes back. I just believe that to be true. And your silence gives evidence that you probably think it's true for you too. 
So you don't know when he's coming back. And then he says this in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that all he has, excuse me, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. And so a, a, a responsible slave has been put in charge of the master's things to give people food and clothing at the proper time. And then he says in verse 48, but if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know. And he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the the question here from the disciples is, Jesus, when are you coming back to set things right? And he says, I'm coming. I'm definitely coming. And I'm going to give signs leading up to when I'm coming. And you can expect this, 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 and this to happen. But I'm not going to tell you the date and I'm not going to tell you the hour. But you need to be a faithful servant or a faithful slave, according to the text, until I get home. You need to be busy about my work so that when I get home, you are found faithful and you're not found like the foolish slave who was complacent and began to eat and drink and beat the slaves. That's no good. And so he says, what you do in the meantime, what you do until I come back is who you are and that's what you'll be rewarded upon and so with all saints day which is the uh halloween is a day that's coming up this week all of you know and all saints day is the uh, christian holiday that's been celebrated and then we get halloween because it's been combined with a another pagan holiday but in light of this all saints day and in light of this us working hard because we don't know when the date or hour is and hopefully you know that All Saints Day is a day that we celebrate people who have paid the ultimate price for following Christ. Uh, And I've got this book full of stories of people who have given everything to follow Christ. And last week, uh, when I was going through the timeline, there were some interest in some of those people from some of you guys. And so I have a story of one of those people who's responsible actually in part for the gospel coming this far into North Carolina and to us. And this guy's name is William Tyndale. And this story takes place in 1536 A.D. Uh, William Tyndale is the guy who put the Bible into the English language so that people can understand it. And there's a, a story I want to read to you. And the purpose for reading this story, it's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to hold on. The purpose of reading this story is that William Tyndale is someone who was a faithful servant of God the whole time that he was on earth. You and I need to be faithful servants of God the whole time we're on earth. And I want you to see the giant things that he accomplished for the kingdom. And I want you and I to be people who dream big and accomplish big things for Christ while we're still here on this earth. We don't need to be people who are always studying and always looking to see when Christ is going to come back and understanding these timetables. But we need to be out. We need to be reaching people for the gospel so that when Christ comes back, more people are ready. And so it says here, uh, this is a conversation that William Tyndall was having. It would be wrong to translate God's holy word into English. The doctor of divinity said sternly, only a language like Latin or Greek is able to fully convey God's truth. English is a vulgar language, fine for plowmen and shopkeepers, but hardly suitable for the Bible. William Tyndale's eyes blazed. He was a highly educated man, fluent in several languages, including Greek and Hebrew. 
Not only can an accurate English translation be done, it should be done. The scriptures of God are being hidden from the people's eyes. The only way that poor people can read and see the simple, plain word of God is if it is turned into their mother tongue, English. In the early 1500s, only scholars could read God's word. The only legal Bible was Latin, which most of the common people could not understand. Since they could not read God's word for themselves, they had to rely upon what others told it said to them. It was illegal to own an English Bible or even memorize scripture in English. In fact, in 1519, seven Christians were burned at the stake in Coventry, England for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments in English. Before long, the two men were arguing heatedly. Tyndale quoted scriptures. The doctor quoted man-made traditions and church rules. Finally, the doctor of divinity shouted, It would be better to be without God's laws than without the Pope's. Tyndale courageously replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. In fact, if God spares my life, I intend to make it possible for a common farmer, a plowman, to know more of the scripture than you do. Within a year of Tyndale's conversion with the doctor of divinity, he decided it was no longer safe for him to stay in England. So he traveled to Germany. There he lived under an assumed name while he worked to finish his translation. When spies from England found him in Germany, he escaped to Belgium where he printed thousands of New Testaments. In 1526, Tyndale's English New Testament began trickling into England. The scriptures, now referred to as the pirate edition, were made smaller than conventional books. This size was easier to smuggle into bales of cotton and containers of wheat being shipped to England. As copies poured into England, they were eagerly bought and read by all sorts of ordinary people who often sat up all night reading them or hearing them read. When the Bishop of London discovered the New Testaments, he bought as many as he could on the black market, paying full price for them. He declared, I intend to burn and destroy them all. The merchant who had smuggled them into England gave the money to Tyndale, who then printed three times as many in a revised version. The Bishop of London had unknowingly become Tyndale's foremost financial supporter. When Tyndale heard the Bibles were thrown into the fire, he said, I expected they would burn the New Testaments. I expect that they want to burn me too. This may yet happen if it is God's will. Even so, I know I did my duty in translating the New Testament. Within the next 10 years, Tyndale's New Testament was widely distributed throughout England. Bible truths were now available to everyone, and many people discovered they could have a personal relationship with God based on his word. At the same time, anyone caught with this illegal book faced severe persecution. Prisons were overflowing, and thousands of Christians were executed. Weekly reports of the persecutions would come to Tyndale, who remained in exile in Europe and continued his translation of the Old Testament. Two of Tyndale's close friends were burned at the stake. Even church officials, once persecutors, became martyrs after finding truth in Tyndale's work. In the spring of 1535, a man named Henry Phillips arrived in Antwerp, where Tyndale had been hiding. In hopes of a reward, Phillips took it on himself to betray Tyndale. He befriended Tyndale, noting that he was simple and inexpert in the wily subtleties of this world. Before Tyndale knew what was happening, Phillips had set an ambush for him. Tyndale spent the next 18 months in prison near Brussels, Belgium. With the help of Miles Coverdale, he was able to complete part of the Old Testament during his stay in prison. 
During his stay in prison, his powerful preaching and the sincerity of his life greatly influenced those around him. The jailer, the jailer's daughter, and others of his household accepted the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior. On October the 6th, 1536, Tyndale was taken from his dungeon and strangled. Then his body was burned. His last words were a fervent prayer. Lord, open the king of England's eyes. God honored Tyndale's prayer. Within three years, the king of England gave instructions that a copy of the great Bible completed by Tyndale's co-workers, Coverdale, including Tyndale's New Testament, be placed in every church in England. Tyndale's translation was so accurate that 75 years later, when the King James Version of the Bible was published, it was based largely upon Tyndale's work. In fact, about 90% of the words remain exactly as he wrote them. And so why do I take time to read three pages? And anytime you do any sort of public speaking and you read, you lose people. Did all that to say that many of you have a King James Bible sitting in your hand. And in 1530, a man gave everything he had to put that Bible into a language so simple plowmen like you and I could understand it. And it cost him his very life. That's an example of a man who was a faithful servant while he was here on earth. And so the question to you today is, in light of the text, in light of Christ is coming back, the world's in a mess, Christ is definitely coming back sometime soon, and he's going to take you and I if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And will you be found as a faithful servant who's been watching over the things of God that he's given you well? Or are you going to be found as a wicked servant who's been eating and drinking and going about his life in a way that has no concern for the things of God? I suspect that if God saved you, when you put your faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit indwelled you, I suspect that God had a large plan for your life. And I want you to do some reflecting just like you would do at a midlife crisis. What is my life amounting to? What big things am I doing for the gospel? If Christ came back right now, would I be found uh, doing all of the things that he commanded me to do? And if you think, you know, I probably could be a better steward of the things God gave me. Then this would be a good week to do some reflect. And next week's sermon is going to be somewhat along the same lines. Because there's a couple more stories that Jesus tells getting people to reflect. But it's never too late to get your life straight. It's only too late after Christ comes back. And so make today the day that you look back and you reflect on the things that you're doing for the Lord. And make today be the day that you get things right if you're not. And even if you're doing as much as you possibly could, I want to encourage you to dream bigger and to do even bigger things for the Lord. Because He's given us already in the book of Matthew, He's given us a blank check. He's told us that anything that we ask for in the Father's name, He'll give us. That's what makes me say that He wants big things out of us. And so, brothers and sisters, as we we close things up and we go to the Lord in prayer, I want you to do some self-reflection. How are things going in your life as far as it goes serving the King? If you're here and you've never been saved, let today be the day that you put your faith in Christ, you trust Him to forgive you of His sins, and you get eternal life. And then you jump on board with us serving the king until he comes back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, 
a sermon like this opens the door to so many more questions that we want answers to. But Lord, I pray that to some degree we would be content just knowing that you are coming back. And Father, I pray that that uncertainty as to the hour would serve to push us on to do bigger and better things so that we can be found faithful when you return. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day that they enter into a relationship with you, with with you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has uh, just slipped into a life of complacency, I pray that today would be the day that they get on fire for you. And Lord, I pray that uh, for anyone here who may be doing the things you want them to do, I pray that you would give them even more zeal to do even more of your work. And Lord, I pray that all of us underneath of the banner of Keshia Baptist Church would be found faithful when you return. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand for our hymn of invitation. Well, it's good to see you all here today. Uh, it's always a pleasure worshiping the Lord with you. On your way out, I want to let you know that uh, the directories uh, that we took last year are in. And if you were here and got your picture taken, you get a free directory. And in that Sunday school classroom right there, uh, some of the ladies are going to be passing them out. And so this week, if you got your picture taken, you get a directory. And then next week, after we see how many leftovers we got, we're going to give out the rest of them uh, to anybody else who's interested in one. And so uh, don't forget to look in your bulletin for all sorts of announcements and things that we've got going on. And I'm going to ask Boyd Copeland if you would dismiss us in prayer.